If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Esther, chapter 2. If you are using the Pew Bible, it is found on page 433. And if you're visiting us this morning and do not own a Bible, please take that as our gift to you. Esther, chapter 2, we'll walk through this entire chapter In honor of God's holy word, if you're able to, please stand for the reading of God's word. Sometime later, when King Ahasuerus' rage had cooled down, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what was decided against her. The king's personal attendants suggested, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in each province of his kingdom so that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem at the fortress of Susa. Put them under the supervision of Higai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, and give them the required beauty treatments. Then the young woman who pleases the king will become queen instead of Vashti. This suggestion pleased the king, and he did accordingly. In the fortress of Susa, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, son of Jer, son of Shemai, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Kish had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took King Jeconiah of Judah into exile. Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin, Hadassah, that is Esther, because she had no father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good-looking. When her father and mother died, Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. When the king's command and edict became public knowledge, and when many young women were gathered at the fortress of Susa under Higai's supervision, Esther was taken to the palace into the supervision of Higai, keeper of the women. The young woman pleased him and gained his favor so that he accelerated the process of the beauty treatments and the special diet that she received. He assigned seven hand-picked female servants to her from the palace and transferred her and her servants to the harem's best quarters. Esther did not reveal her ethnicity or family background because Mordecai had ordered her not to make them known. Every day, Mordecai took a walk in front of the harem's courtyard to learn, Esther, to learn how Esther was doing and to see what was happening to her. During the year before each young woman's turn to go to King Ahasuerus, the harem regulations required her to receive beauty treatments with oil of myrrh for six months, and then with perfumes and cosmetics for another six months. When the young woman would go to the king, she was given whatever she requested to take with her from the harem to the palace. She would go in the evening, and in the morning she would return to second harem under the supervision of the king's eunuch, Shazgaz, keeper of the concubines. She never went to the king again unless he desired her and summoned her by name. Esther was the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had adopted her as his own daughter. When her turn came to the king, to go to the king, she did not ask for anything except what Higai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, suggested. Esther gained favor in the eyes of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Ahasuerus in the palace in the tenth month, the month Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women. She won more favor and approval from him than did any of the other virgins. He placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti. The king held a great banquet for all his officials and staff. It was Esther's banquet. 
He freed his provinces from tax payments and gave gifts worthy of the king's bounty. When the virgins were gathered a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther did not reveal her family background or her ethnicity as Mordecai had directed. She obeyed Mordecai's orders as she always had while he raised her. During those days while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bichthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance, became infuriated and planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. When Mordecai learned of the plot, he, returned to, he reported it to King Queen Esther, and she took the king and she told the king on Mordecai's behalf. When the report was investigated and verified, both men were hanged on the gallows. This event was recorded in the historical record in the king's presence. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Now this is a story all about how my life got flipped, turned upside down. And I'd like to take a minute, just sit right there, and I'll tell you about all how I became the prince of a town called Bel-Air. Many of you are very familiar with the opening lines to the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. It's one of my favorite shows. It's really dope. And the show is about an African-American from Philly moving to Bel Air, California. He came from the hood and he moved to the suburbs. Bel Air was upper class, so very high socioeconomic status. It was culturally majority white, it had its own customs, and the black people who lived there, like Will's family, the banks, they assimilated to that society. And here you have Will Smith coming to live among these people, seeking to adapt to the culture of society while not trying to assimilate. He wanted to maintain his black identity being from the hood. So he sought to adapt and not assimilate. Many of us, we can certainly relate to a certain extent to the story of the Fresh Prince as Christ has saved us by his grace. He has made us citizens of his coming kingdom, and yet we still live in this world. We have dual identities. Christians... We also have different ethnicities. We come from different cities or the suburbs or rural area or the inner city or different states or different countries. We're trying to navigate life. And there are times when these identities come into a head-on collision. Where we are Christian, our Christian identity at times as a head-on collision with cultural aspects and assumptions and expectations of other identities. And as Christians, we're seeking to navigate what does it look like to be faithful to Christ 
as we live in this evil age. As our identity in Christ takes precedent, what is it like to be faithful amidst an unbelieving generation? Well, in our sermon text this morning, Esther, who is in exile, is living among a, among a pagan land. And we're confronted with some of the same things that she herself experienced. Though we may face similar temptations, that doesn't mean that we are to respond as similar as Esther did. This text is very relevant for us as we navigate life in this evil age. The big idea from this text is this. Walk as citizens of God's kingdom as you navigate life in this age. Walk as citizens of God's kingdom as you navigate life in this age. Three exhortations for us from this text. First, resist worldly influences and ideologies. Second, refuse to compromise. And third, may we remain faithful. Resist worldly influences and ideologies. May we refuse to compromise and may we also strive to remain faithful. For a little bit of context, as we saw last time, we were introduced to King Ahasuerus. Persian king who's reigning and y'all, he liked to do the most. Had a big party, wanted to show off his wife. She refused to come, and so in response, he dismissed her and brought about an edict that demanded for wives to submit to their husbands. Which brings us to where we are in our passage. Just a heads up, the first point is by far the longest point. Okay? First exhortation from the text is that we are to refuse worldly influences and ideologies. So there's no specified time in between the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. Verse 1 talks about how King Ahasuerus, he remembered Vashti. Now this remembering is likely referring to him regretting all that happened. His demand and then his overreacting response to her refusal, dismissing her. But the thing is, in Persia, once an edict has been given, it is irrevocable, and so he must move on. Look at verses 2 through 4. The king's personal attendants suggested, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in each province of his kingdom so that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem at the fortress of Susa. Put them under the supervision of Haggai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, and give them the required beauty treatments. Then the young woman who pleases the king will become queen instead of Vashti. So we hear the suggestion in a search for a new queen. The criteria is that she must be young, beautiful, and a virgin. That's it. All external. Absolutely nothing about her character or her convictions of belief. 
solely concerned about the outward. This is the exact opposite of God who says that he examines the heart. Well, man looks at the outward appearance. King Ahasuerus, he wanted a trophy wife. Someone who is eye candy. Obsessed with beauty. Now, one thing to be clear, beauty in and of itself is not a sin. There's nothing sinful in and of itself with being attractive. But it is wrong and evil to exploit it and use it for personal selfish ambition. There was a wild obsession with beauty in that culture. As we see the criteria, first you have to find a beautiful woman. Chapter 2, verse 12 talks about this beauty treatment of a year long of cosmetics and oil to, pat, uh, to, 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 I'm forgetting the word right now, but to pamper the woman that, she may, that her beauty may be enhanced. Chapter 2, verse 9 talks about a specific diet that these women were to eat. This was an obsession with beauty. Now, it's crazy for us to think that that was just something of the past. Because, beloved, even today there is still a wild obsession with beauty. You have supermodels. Images are photoshopped. Bodily surgeries. Filters on phone apps. Folks take 20 pictures just so they can find the perfect one. Men and women live in gyms and count calories in order to maintain a particular figure. And the judge of beauty in our society is not God, who's the most glorious and beautiful being. But instead, it is the court of public opinion. It's the eye test. The jury is one's friends and followers. So if you receive a ton of likes and compliments, you feel beautiful, and the absence of them influences one to feel unpretty. There's this wild obsession with beauty, and yet Scripture says that beauty is fleeting. The outward self is wasting away, and yet there is still this chase, to hold, to, this chase after the wind to permanently hold on to the very thing that is passing. This is the culture that we are immersed in, seeking to indoctrinate us to, main, to adopt this view. And beloved, if we are not careful, we can easily be influenced to adopt the world and culture's view of beauty. To where we change up our wardrobe based on what everyone else thinks is beautiful. crazy thing is, and the true thing, not crazy, but the reality is, true beauty is found in God alone. He is pure and perfect in every attribute, glorious, and by his grace, when he opened our eyes, we were captivated to the beauty of his glory and goodness. And in fact, it is that God who is beautiful makes known in his word what is beautiful to him. And newsflash, it is not your good looks. It is godliness. Beloved, it says that it is precious in his sight. He tells us to seek to grow in godliness, not to grow in looking better outwardly. 
Because as we grow in godliness, we grow in conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ. The very image that God is restoring in all who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Here we see this search for a new queen. This search was first a draft, then it became a beauty pageant. And then the woman who pleased the king the most will be crowned queen. This is deplorable and sinful. And it's to no surprise that this wicked king signed off on it. Now, women weren't the only ones who had it bad in his kingdom. Men did as well. If you were to read the first two chapters of Esther, a phrase you would see be repeated is the word eunuch. What this king would do is he would take men from his provinces and make them eunuchs and force them to serve him in his kingdom. But here, we read of how beautiful women were dehumanized as he indulged in his insatiable fleshly lusts. This dishonors God and it perverts not only marriage, but also marital intimacy. Beloved, this is evil, and yet today this is seen as entertainment. Is this not a script from The Bachelor or Flavor of Love? If we are disgusted by this, how, and we should, then how much more should we be disgusted by shows of The Bachelor and The Bachelorette? where men and women voluntarily subject themselves to be objectified, to be dehumanized in hopes to find love. Should incline us to not only be disgusted, but have compassion upon them. For we know that the very thing that they are looking for, it won't be found in any person on earth. It is found in Jesus Christ alone. Beloved, God in his grace has redeemed us by the blood of Christ, made us citizens of his kingdom, and that reality should influence how we are to live. Where he says, not a hint of sexual immorality is to be named among us. We live in a world where this is, these influences are very strong, which is why Paul tells us to not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. If, that must happen, if that's going to happen, beloved, then we must daily delight in the Lord and mortify our fleshly desires. Because if we do not, then we will find enjoyment in the very things that God abhors and that Christ died to save us from. What's amazing about God and his kingdom is that he flips the script. He turns on its head the ways of the world. Think about Jesus the one whom God loved and prized, he was not viewed as beautiful in the world's eyes. Isaiah chapter 53 verses 2 and 3 says, He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. He was like someone people turned away from. He was a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. He was despised and we didn't value him. The very one whom God delighted in, the world detested and hung him on a cross. And it was the very means by which that God would save sinners. 
the instrument of the cross. It is an instrument of horror, and yet for Christians, it is an instrument of beauty because of the one who hung on it and what he accomplished for us. His suffering for our salvation. And what's so amazing about Jesus is that his pursuit of his bride is radically different than the Hasserah's pursuit of his bride. For Jesus, the criteria isn't that you be beautiful, it's that you be broken. Mourning over your sin. Not covering it up with good works, but confessing it with humility. Beloved King, Jesus is so loving that instead of having you give yourself to him, he gave himself for us. And what pleases him is not perfection and performance, but receiving him by faith and walking by faith. What love, what grace, what king. Let me address the children in the room. Kids, you live in a society that places big emphasis on performance. A society that subtly declares that your performance and the results of it is the basis of love, acceptance, and approval. Think about academics. If you're really smart, you get in the honor roll, you make the honor society, you get acceptance letters, scholarships. Think about sports. If you're really great in sports, you make varsity and, and pickup games, folk, you'll be the first people somebody chooses. Think about acting. If you're good in acting, you get one of the main roles. Or if you're not, you end up being an extra. If not, you're working the curtains. That's how things work in the world, but that's not how things work in God's kingdom. You can't work your acceptance. You can't work to be accepted by God. You can't perform before him and then he will say, oh yeah, you're mine's. No. In the kingdom of God, to be loved and to be eternally and perfectly loved and accepted depends upon responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not by works. It is by believing in Jesus Christ alone. It is the only way he will accept you. So I would encourage you to resist. Don't apply that perspective of the world to following Jesus because that's just not how it works. In verse 4, here we see the news pleased the king. This shallow and sinful plan has been put into place. God knew it. As his providence is pervasive. He will work in the midst of this wickedness to accomplish his purposes and plans and to preserve his people. As I said in the first sermon in Esther, his name is absent, but his hand is present. It is invisible, but it is not idle. He is actively at work. And in verses 5 to 7, we are introduced to Mordecai. It says he was a Jewish man, a son of Shemai, a son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Kish had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took King Jeconiah of Judah into exile. He was a legal guardian of Esther. 
because she was an orphan. This young woman was beautiful in figure and was extremely good-looking. Mordecai was an imperial employee. He was a Jew, a member of King Saul's family. He was a descendant of Abraham. He was a part of God's covenant people in the Old Covenant. And in these verses, the word exile is mentioned or alluded to three times as God punished his people for their covenant disobedience with 70 years of exile. He promised to deliver them from exile, and it came to pass when King Cyrus issued a decree for the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. Well, Mordecai and some of the Jews, they chose to remain foreigners in this land. Mordecai adopted his orphan cousin, Esther. As we saw, she too met the criteria as she was extremely good-looking and beautiful to take, beautiful to look at. She was taken. Verse 9 says, the woman pleased him and gained his favor, pleased Higai and gained his favor so that he accelerated the process of the beauty treatments and the special diet that she received. Verse 10, Esther did not reveal her ethnicity or her background because Mordecai had ordered her not to make them known. So Esther gained favor. Esther also assimilated to society. And it came at a cost. Being a Jew who is to adhere to the old covenant, there were particular foods that she wasn't supposed to eat, and here she violated the she violated the dietary restrictions, eating what was given. Not only that, she also concealed her identity. Now we can speculate why Mordecai encouraged it. He may have discerned some hints of anti-Semitism, or he may have feared the consequences if she were to be faithful. Regardless, he encouraged her to conform. Beloved, concealing your Christian identity almost always leads to compromise. Concealing your Christian identity almost always leads to compromise. Many of us know this from experience, whether it be at work or friendships or relationships. Folks we are close to may not even know that we're Christians. They may even be surprised if we were to tell them to, then tell them that we were because of our being complicit in sin, lying with them, or partaking in drunkenness. These things are not to be so. Instead, we're to be unashamed of the gospel of Christ, unapologetic of our identity in Christ, identifying with him regardless of the consequences. Spiritual warfare is so real that we're in need to pray for courage. Because if we're going to identify with Christ in this evil age, we need courage. And one of the ways that we get this courage is through praying. The Spirit empowers us in this way. Think about, think about the New Testament. They prayed for courage and the Spirit gave it. We see this in Acts 4. Paul prayed for courage, asking the congregations to pray that he may be bold in proclaiming the gospel. Beloved, we are not courageous in and of ourselves, but that is not too hard for God. Here we see Esther. Many of us may be uncomfortable with the book of Esther because it's messy. 
Sin is all over this book, and we see she is being complicit. She's not faithful in this pagan kingdom like Daniel. My bad. She's not repentant. She doesn't seem to be repentant over her sin like David. And so one may wonder, like, what do you do with her? Well, beloved, if you survey the entire Bible, with the exception of one, every person was a sinner. Go down the list. Adam rebelled against God and sin came into the world. Noah got drunk. Abraham slept with Hagar and lied on his wife twice. Jacob was a deceiver. Moses was a murderer. David slept with his boy's wife and then had his boy murked. Jonah struggled with racism. Peter denied Jesus three times and the apostle Paul killed Christians before he became a Christian. Beloved, all the heroes of the Bible needed the one and true and only hero of the Bible, and it is none other than Jesus Christ. It was his perfect obedience on our behalf and his substitutionary death for us is the very reason and the only reason that we who have trusted in him are saved by grace. His blood satisfied the wrath of God. And he resurrected and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And so, friends, if you are here this morning and you do not know yourself to be a Christian, this is the good news. Our message isn't clean yourself up. That's the message of the world. The reality is you can't clean yourself up. Our message is God does that through sending his son to die and raise from the grave. Our message is you can be cleaned up by trusting in Christ alone. Esther, she is an unlikely hero, but truth be told, I believe that she is the most relatable hero in the Bible. Though her decisions and actions discourage us, in some ways they actually serve as a mirror. Because like Esther, many of us, we too, have concealed our identity at times. Like Esther, we too have compromised. Like Esther, we too have been complicit in sin. But what is the most confounding thing about all of this is that God doesn't cast us aside. He doesn't put us out of our misery, but instead in his love, he gives us mercy. In his infinite Love, he has in infinite measure more mercy than you and I have sin. What's amazing about God, that his, in his love, he covers our mess with mercy. And then his, in his providence, he uses our messy experience for ministry. Let me say that again. God covers our mess with his mercy and then he uses our messy experience for ministry. Think about Esther and what's going to happen later in this book. Think about the Apostle Paul, who can confidently say that no sin is too great for God to forgive. Now, one may say, Paul, of course you can say that. Your life was, your life was amazing. And he would say, they would say, how would you know? And he would say, I know because I hated Christ and I killed Christians. And yet he has forgiven me. 
He has had mercy on me. Many of us, we can attest to it. That God has saved us from our mess. God has sustained us in our suffering. And in his sovereignty, he is using our experiences to minister to people who are in similar situations. Beloved, God is so sovereign that he wastes absolutely nothing. Only God can use crooked sticks to make straight lines. Here, Esther, she is complicit. The citizens of God's kingdom, we will be placed in similar situations where there will be a head-on collision. Our allegiance will be tested. There will be pressures for us to deny Christ and conform to the world. Beloved, may we be faithful despite the consequences. God in his grace can give us strength to resist temptation as we place our gaze upon Jesus. The author and perfecter of faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne on high. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 3 says, Consider him who endured such hostility against himself so that you won't grow weary and give up. Beloved, we are to resist worldly influences and ideologies, and there are many of them. Temptation is always lurking. We must hold firm to our confession of faith and remain faithful. So we resist these things, and we also refuse to compromise, which is part of resisting. Verses 12 to 14, here we see the standard the, pro- the standard process and procedure of all these women, it was one year of grooming and a one-night stand of performing. This was humiliating and shameful, something that no person should ever endure. God made all people in his image worthy of dignity and honor and love and respect. The exploitation of any image bearer is never okay, regardless of your age, ethnicity, gender, or your socioeconomic status. And yet in this evil age, it is common. Even in the history of our country, you have the experimentation of black bodies. And also you have human trafficking, not only here, but around the world. These things are wicked, deplorable. It's important for us to know, though, though God is sovereign over all things, permitting these things, do not interpret that as him condoning it, though. There is no evil in God. A statement of faith would say that he is not the author or approver of evil. Instead, evil arouses his holy and righteous wrath. In fact, he records it in the book. And every sinner who is not covered in the blood of Christ will be overwhelmed with his eternal wrath and fury on that final day. He is sovereign over all things and he is actively at work in all things, accomplishing his purpose. 
in verses 15 to 18, it was Esther's turn. When her turn came to go to the king, she did not ask for anything except what Higai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, suggested. Esther gained favor in the eyes of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Ahasuerus in the palace in the tenth month. The king loved Esther more than all the other women. She won more favor and approval from him than did any of the other virgins. He placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti. There was a great banquet and remission of taxes. Here we see Esther. She compromised. Committed sexual immorality with an unbelieving pagan. King loved her. She was crowned. It was a banquet, remission of taxes and celebration. Compromised. Like then in our society, sexual immorality is prevalent. It is tempting. Christians can even give in. We see this in 1 Corinthians. Some of us have seen this in our own lives. And we can relate. Someone may even be convicted now of compromising sexually. May be convicted and beloved, if you're experiencing any sort of conviction, know that that is God being kind to you. That is God loving you. His heavy hand is weighing upon you not to condemn you because Christ was condemned, but that you may confess it and that you may be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Here we have Esther, a Jew living in a pagan society. She is to be God, since she is a part of God's covenant people, she is to be faithful to God, and that's exactly what he commands. And simultaneously, she's living in this pagan society, and King Ahasuerus demands total commitment to him. These dual identities have collided, and she has chosen to assimilate. Beloved, we who live in this evil age, because we live in this evil age, we also would be placed in the same predicament. The question is, how will you respond? And all of that is dependent upon who and what you treasure. You treasure being liked by man, you will assimilate You will be complicit. You will acquiesce. You will give in to the sin. But if Christ is your treasure and hope, by the grace of God, you and I, we can resist. In fact, it is in our refusal to compromise that we show that Jesus Christ is our treasure. It's in our refusal to compromise. It's what shows that our citizenship isn't in this land, but in another land. Because our allegiance is not to the people of this world, but our ultimate allegiance is found and is given to King Jesus in response to his love and sacrifice for us. Well, if we are faithful, there will be consequences. 
Paul says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But let me tell you as a reminder that Jesus is worth it. He is worthy of every insult and injury that we experience on account of his name. Beloved, he will heal and mend every wound that we receive. We will suffer now and we will rejoice later. As we read in the corporate scripture, the response of reading Luke 6, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, and slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Take note, your reward is great, not on earth, but it is great in heaven. Take heart, beloved. Stand firm by the grace of God. Refuse to compromise because we have a greater love and Jesus is that greater love. Jesus is worth it. If he has suffered for us, we can suffer on account of his name in response. Esther, she compromised. Again, you look at the end of the book, you see what happens. The book of Esther teaches us that God is so sovereign and he is so kind. He is so good that he can pick up the broken pieces of our bad and sinful decisions and still work something good out of it. God is that mighty and he is that good. And though he can do it, Christians are not to presume upon his kindness and goodness. The Christian perspective isn't, God, I'll do me, and you do what you do with it. The Christian perspective is, Lord, I love you. Help me to obey you by your grace. Use me for whatever purpose that you have set. Because I am not my own. Beloved, may this be our perspective. May we refuse to compromise and as we navigate life in this evil age, beloved, may we remain faithful. Here, verses 19 and 20. When the virgins were gathered a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther did not reveal her family background or her ethnicity as Mordecai had directed. She obeyed Mordecai's orders as she always had while he raised her. Now, there are different interpretations on these two verses. My take is that there is a second round of virgins who have been gathered that King Ahasuerus wants to keep sleeping around. One of the reasons why I think that is because even in chapter 4, Esther would say that it's been 30 days since she has been summoned by the king. Verses 21 to 23, Mordecai sits at the king's gate. He hears of two eunuchs plotting to assassinate King Ahasuerus. He reported it to Queen Esther. It's investigated. It is verified. These men were killed, and the event was recorded. Here we see Mordecai doing a very common and ordinary thing, sitting at the king's gate, faithful to his responsibility. And yet in the sovereignty of God, he was right there. He learned of the plot. This is a work of God's providence. His wise governing over all things. 
This is not chance or luck, as there is no such thing as luck. I'm tempted to go in right there. If you know me, then you know I am, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm just going to leave it at that. There's no such thing as luck. God places us where he wills. Acts chapter 17, verse 26 says that God has determined the appointed times we live and the boundaries of where we live. God, was, God is so sovereign to place Mordecai right there. And beloved, God is not, wasn't only sovereign over Mordecai's life, he's sovereign over our lives. Where we are is because God has placed us there. And beloved, don't belittle where God has placed you in your family or friends or where you live or where you work. We are where God has us. And wherever we are, we are to serve the Lord with gladness, which means that we are to be good citizens, good employers, good employees, good students, because Christ has saved us. Beloved, being a Christian doesn't make us bad in what we do. It is to make us better in everything that we do because we do it as unto the Lord for his glory, even in the places where we don't want to be. Now, it could be easy for us to complain and grumble because God has us where we don't want to be. And yet, it's important for us to remember that God has us there for a purpose. The propagation of the gospel, to love and serve those, to let our light shine that people may see our good works and give glory to God. Beloved, we may be the only personal access that people around us have to hearing the gospel in person. God can use our faithfulness to him in preaching the gospel for his glory and their eternal good. See, Mordecai, here he was faithful, looking out for the well-being of this wicked king. And his faithfulness wasn't immediately rewarded, which is a huge, huge, huge detail in the book of Esther. The one thing that we can learn from him here is that we have to remain faithful where he has us. So we're to navigate life in this evil age faithful to King Jesus. For he has saved us. He has left us here to reflect him as we await his coming kingdom. Beloved, may we persevere in this regardless of whether or not we'll be chided by man, knowing that we will be commended by God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, God, you are so sovereign over all things. You are good in all things. You are wise. You, was, you have left us here that we may point people to Christ Jesus that we may encourage one another. Living as exiles because our citizenship is in heaven. God, we are homesick, desiring to be in your benevolent presence. 
But Lord, as you have us here, help us to be faithful. Help us to remember that the greatest treasure isn't being liked by man, but having Christ. And you have given him out of your love. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.